Did you take notice of the headlights, taillights, rear windows, and windshield for cleanliness and breakage? And did you make a visual inspection of the tires for proper inflation? Naturally. Is there anything else? No, that completes our pre-driving checklist. Good. Now, your body position is very important. Sit erect with your hands at the 3 o'clock and 9 o'clock positions on the steering wheel. What are you doing? I'm starting the car. You'll notice my hand is in the key-turning position. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And Amy, you are fully licensed to tell everybody what trope we are talking about today. That's right, because we're learning to drive. Learning to drive. This is very much a real-life rite of passage that many people in the industrialized world experience, So what are our shows? We are watching Taxi, Season 2, Episode 3, Reverend Jim, A Space Odyssey. The Facts of Life, Season 7, Episode 14, Tootie Drives. Sister, Sister, Season 2, Episode 9, Two for the Road. And Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter, Season 1, Episode 4, Wings. Right. So we've got three shows about teenagers learning how to drive and sort of a fun little bonus with an iconic adult who may be learning or remembering how to drive. But before we get into the shows, uh, you and I are both licensed drivers. Yes, one of us, I think, more so than the other. (laughs) Well, I think we're both (laughs) equally licensed. I don't know. I've been in a car with you. (laughs) So was your road to being a licensed driver rocky in any way? Were you nervous? Did you fail at all? Did you or was it smooth sailing? Yes, it was rocky. I failed my first driving test. This woman at the DMV was legendary in my town for being horrible, for just being like the worst person to take your driving test with. People called her like the dragon lady. I mean, like everybody talked about like, oh God, I hope you don't get this one lady. Mm -hmm. I got her. And so we go to pull out of the parking lot and it's a really busy road. And she told me to turn left and there's no light there. So it was like trying to cut across six lanes of traffic. Two of them are turn lanes. There's another uh, parking lot across the street that's also emptying out. And so there's just lots. And there's an intersection with a light just at the end of the block. So it's very busy and really challenging to get in and out of, especially if you're going to take a left. So I sat there and 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 she sighs. And I'm like, oh shit, I got to go in the next break because she's going to think I'm just scared. And so I go and it was it was going to be like a gun it to get out there. And she goes, what are you doing? Right, right. I said, turn right. And she starts screaming. And I was like, ah. And she goes, stop what you're doing. Turn right now. Turn right at the end of the block. Turn into the parking lot. This test is over. And that was my first driving test. Yeah. All right. And so then you rescheduled, took it a second time, and it like was more or less... Like two days later, yeah. yeah at at the other DMV where there was no possibility that I was going to get this horrible lady. Yeah. Right. Uh, that is similar to one of the times that I failed my driving test. <laughs> uh, 
I would, you know, I'm a nervous personality. I don't even really remember it that well, but I'm sure I was super nervous uh, going into that situation as a teenager. And the first time that I tried to take it, kind of like I, something that comes up in one of these shows briefly, the car registration was expired. And, you know, my dad is as much of a goofball as me and did not bother to, you know, take note of that or care about that when, you know, he took me to the test. So the guy took one look at the car and said, I can't administer the test in a, in a car that's not properly registered. And that was that. And then the second time was kind of a similar situation. I was making a left turn at a light with oncoming traffic. And I don't really remember the details other than I, I hesitated. I think I hesitated, maybe like stopped and started or something. And the guy freaked out, you know, kind of like your person and yelled at me and said, you know, you're being dangerous. And, you know, looking back on it, because I felt sort of wronged. I felt like he overreacted and ah, I don't know. I'm just being considerate and letting the people go. But the fact is, I'm sure I came across as uncomfortable driving. And given the gravity of, you know, how, how dangerous it is to drive, I actually think, you know, given that you only have 15, 20 minutes as a driving administrator to observe these kids, if they seem nervous and not quite ready, yeah, it makes sense to say, you know, come back another time. Yeah, maybe not yet. That's so, you are, like, you're so nice, like, <laughs> upon your reflection, being like, wow, you know, it probably was a little bit of me for sure, yeah. and I well, get 30 it. 30 years is enough time to get over it. Well, not for me. She was still <laughs> very, very wrong. And the one thing, though, that I can't quite wrap my head around is I, like, I thought she told me to turn left and she swore she never said the words left. She yeah. said, she was like, I told you to turn right from jump. And I was like, never heard the words right. So I don't know if she misspoke or I misheard, but like, I felt very wronged because I was like, you said left, yeah. not right. <laughs> yeah, and we'll never know for sure. Uh, so, all right. So these shows, like I said, we're going to get to our three pretty sort of solid of a piece examples of teenagers learning how to drive. But first, we have this fun episode of Taxi, which is the introduction or at least the sort of introduction as a as a semi-permanent character of Reverend Jim, Christopher Lloyd's character. Yep. This is uh, an episode that I feel like is is famous beyond its, you know, beyond even the series itself. Absolutely. One of it's the most the, iconic. Yeah, it's the highest rated episode of Taxi ever. And Jimmy Burroughs says it's the funniest episode of television he's ever directed. Yeah. So truth be told, the trope that this really falls into better is introducing a fun new character in right. the second season to kind of spice things up. Uh, but as it is, we do get a lot of DMV action in That's this, right. <laughs> so I feel like it counts. Uh, and it's classic. I mean, you want to talk about a classic show? Like, this is it right here. We get... Louis, Danny DeVito's character, gets drugged and sings a little song, you know? I mean, the whole the whole episode is wild and hilarious. You have Christopher Lloyd at his absolute best. Like, oh, he's amazing. Just amazing and so funny in this episode. Yeah. So it starts at the restaurant. The whole gang is in the restaurant. This isn't going to be a... A, B, and C story thing. We're pretty much going to have the whole gang together just kind of going through this story. Yeah. So they're all celebrating Tony's win by default, right? Tony right. is a boxer in real life and in all of his sitcom roles. So he won because what? The guy passed
passed out or something. The guy tripped or or like slipped on the ropes getting into the ring and knocked himself out. Yeah. He like slipped through the ropes or over the ropes and getting into the ring and knocked his head on something. And so that was it. He was out. And so he won by default. And the the owner of the restaurant, waiter at the restaurant gets a funny little line where he says, oh, we're celebrating because you won. Yay. Okay. Beer's on me or whatever. The first pitcher's on me. Um, and then he hears the story about how he won by default. And he was like, that'll be three dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they're celebrating nonetheless. But uh, they pretty quickly spot Reverend Jim. Christopher Lloyd walks in and they all say they recognize him because he officiated Latka's wedding. Right. right? So, of course, I'm wondering, was this an episode? Did no. this happen? Or this is just an off screen thing that they made up? Because yeah. to me, it was a coin toss. I could believe either one. So this episode actually happened. Okay, Latka, so there was, yes, there was a guest a wedding appearance episode, by Christopher Lloyd. And at, Carol Kane, uh-huh. who played Latka's wife, Mika or something like that. Like It's very know. similar to Latka, but it starts with like an M. And yeah, and that happened in season one. Okay, so they're spotting him again. Oh, look, it's that guy, Reverend Jim. You know, they kind of call him over. And he's just hilarious from the jump. Just the little mini decisions that Christopher Lloyd makes. You know, when they ask him, uh, you know, how you doing, Reverend Jim? Oh, good. Do you recognize us? No. And just the way he says no is really, really funny. Like, just, no. yeah, just, just everything about it. Just these weird ways that he tosses off these lines. He also looks amazing. Yeah. Like he is really sexy. It's, it's <laughs> one of the youngest I've ever seen him, except maybe one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And he just has this like ruggedness to him, but still all of the Christopher Lloyd weirdness that yeah. I'm like, this guy, like, I, I'm I'm on board. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I didn't realize that the Doc wig when in Back to the Future was really a wig because I just assumed that he was kind of like an older guy by then. But this is only, what, four or five years before that because this is 79. So, yeah, it definitely, the Doc wig definitely was a wig. And I'm just yeah. like, oh, But in general, minute. even in Clue in or Clue, the Dream yeah, Team. Yeah, he looks older then too, but he has right. his hair all slicked yeah, back. Yeah, he's never looked this good. Even a few few years later in his cheers uh, guest spot you know he he was not at this level of hotness christopher lloyd is at he is beyond al borland levels of hotness <laughs> at this point well part of it is the canadian tuxedo and i think the other part is like the way he basically has like the beginnings of doc brown hair it's but like that's it it's, it's like kind of sticking up everywhere but it's like closer cropped and he i mean he's got he's got that like Welcome back, Cotter, you know, Jeff Conway, you know, look, that 70s tall, skinny guy look. Yeah, and I have to say... Uh, it, it's funny to me how the role of denim has changed in our society over the years because we watched this, we just randomly watched A Star is Born, the 70s version with Chris Christopherson, Ugh. who is also sporting this head-to-toe denim thing. And he looks really good in that, yeah, too. And he looks like super hunky in that. Yeah, I feel like we think of, you know, the Canadian tuxedo or whatever, we think of it as kind of cheesy, someone walking around all in denim. Well, the Zoomers don't. Like, that's okay. a thing that they're, they're wearing. They're back. That, yeah, and the the kids at school all the time. Yeah, all, all the mom jeans and like oversized, a different type of denim, but like oversized mom jeans and oversized denim jackets. Yeah, well, whatever it is, Christopher Lloyd in this, Chris Christopherson in Star Is Born, they have this 
all denim look with like slightly different colors and like consistencies of of jeans all over them but it it works and yeah they have this counterculture vibe and of course as we get to know christopher lloyd's character uh, reverend jim Moore, we see that's his whole gimmick his whole thing is he's he's an acid casualty he did all of the drugs in the 60s and you know you got to think at this time late 70s that this show is coming out this is still a fun stereotype to sort of mess around with. Yeah, I mean, and I was surprised. I had not really... I Gosh, I just, you know, I guess I wasn't old enough to pick up on some of those kinds of references when I first saw this and, uh, and and other television shows of the same era. But it was really interesting to, like, hear him talking about, you know, our parents' generation, that, like, hippie culture generation as, you know, not really having worked out so well. And, uh, you know, and then even he's like, and everybody gave up on the cause. Yeah, it's really interesting because I would have thought, like I said, oh, it's a gimmick that's his thing he's a druggie and and it is but yeah he gets into this thing he says i am the living embodiment of the 60s everything that came along i did it even if i didn't understand it and so they have some fun lines where he says i spent a year of my life making a macrame couch you know he talks about i went to woodside i went to this and that and yeah it's like he was just just the stars aligned for this guy to just fully buy into everything and be like, this is what it's all about, including the drugs. And so there is this tragic angle to it because it's like the way he plays it is so funny, but this is absolutely a real thing. And lives were destroyed by people jumping whole hog into this drug culture and and all the rest of it. A hundred. And it's so funny because he talks about like, wait, am I dreaming? Is this a dream? Yeah. You know, he says he has a recurring nightmare about what are they, little... Oh, he says, uh, He says, I thought I was on my way to Nirvana, but all I have for it is a recurring nightmare about... Oh, it's it's some cartoon character, and he says they're coming out of the pea pods. Right. I, I don't remember which it was. <laughs> Me either, but it was like some... It's not Smurfs, but it's something little like that, and yeah. they keep coming out. And he, so he'll be like, random things will happen in the like main taxi station of the show and he'll be like oh are those little you know cartoon characters coming out again when are they coming (laughs) yeah now the other thing worth noting i think about this opening restaurant scene just talking about signs of the times and the culture and everything latka walks in his gimmick for this whole episode is going to be he spent the previous night in harlem right he got lost on the way to tony's fight oh that was so interesting when he said oh i got lost and i and i ended up in harlem and the whole gang was like, are you okay? And the audience, the studio audience is chuckling and tittering at the mention of Harlem. So there's this definite connotation that like, oh, you went to Harlem and you're this funny little white guy. Like, oh my gosh, what was that like? And so he goes explaining, well, I kept telling everybody I was looking for a fight, right? Because he's Latka and he has all the malapropisms and everything. And so he doesn't understand that like going around saying you're looking for a fight is gonna you know is gonna cause trouble and then he keeps saying things like oh everybody thought i was their brother and stuff and so it's like he's sort of relaying secondhand all of these goofy little cultural misunderstandings that he had with the black community of of harlem well they like adopted i mean he like the bar that he ended up in he ended up making all these friends and like learning all this cool new lingo so throughout the show he'll be like hey what's up hep cat you know and like saying random things 
things to people. Yes, when somebody asks him what he's doing, he says, I'm getting done, bro. Like he, yeah, that's, that's just how he talks now. So yes, definite sign of the times, maybe a little dated, but it's a funny little B-plot for him. And yeah, this all sort of culminates in the gang, especially Mary Lou Henner's character, feeling sorry for, for Jim, basically, and going like, we need to help this guy. Like, he's this, he's not on a good path. Yeah, and it's funny because the other guys sort of dip in and out of that. Like, you see Tony and um, Judd Hirsch's character both kind of being like, well, I don't know about this guy. He seems kind of like a waste of space. Like, I don't know if we want, need to help him or want to help him. And then they go back and forth and Elaine finally convinces everybody. So they tell him to come down to the taxi station the next day day and they're going to try and get him they're going to try and convince louis to hire him but then they realize that he needs to take a driving test yeah and another topical thing from the time that i just wanted to get in there that's also really interesting tony danza's character calls out christopher lloyd for being a draft dodger or being anti-war you know he's going on about. i thought this was really well done yeah it is he's going on about like ah you know i was spent all my time protesting that stupid war and then and so tony danza kind of perks up at that and goes like hey uh you know he says you know me and my friends he says you know they're all those guys were risking their lives and you know fighting overseas so that bums like you could stay back here and sit around and do drugs and protest what do you have to say to that and christopher lloyd just immediately goes thank you and (laughs) the whole audience laughs but it also is this there's this applause and this laughter of like oh he he, it it actually like successfully plays both sides where it's like we do respect our soldiers and they should they should have our gratitude but also you know what it's kind of funny that he stayed home and did drugs right it was gonna it's gonna take a little while longer before we um are able to elect those draft dodgers to the presidency yeah exactly (laughs) but yeah i just wanted to mention that but yeah we move along to the the garage and the only driving lesson we get happens off camera so so christopher lloyd walks into to the garage with Bobby and Bobby says oh hey if you drive if you drive like you just did with me on the test you'll do fine so we don't even really get a sense of like does he know how to drive and he just needs a commercial license? Is he somebody that's just like, he's probably driven like hippie school buses before, but never bothered getting a license or something. We don't really know at this point. Right. And so then now the big thing is we have to convince Louie, which is Danny DeVito. And this just sort of happens, right? Louie's yelling like he always does. And then... Christopher Lloyd goes over to where he's standing and tries to like introduce himself and he's not paying any attention. And so he slips something into his coffee. Yeah, I thought it was a sort of deliberate, uh, like I thought he was drugging him. He, I think he was, but I don't know why. I think it was just because he was angry. I thought- He wanted him to like chill out. Yeah, I I don't quite understand how that helps him get the job, but I thought the joke was the rest of the characters are all brainstorming amongst themselves of like, what can we do to convince Louis to let him be a driver? And then he was just like, oh, I'll show you what you can do and just drugged him. But yeah, yeah, and I felt like he wasn't really paying any attention to the gang and he was just sort of seeing this guy be like really crazy and strung out. And he was like, man, this guy needs to chill out. Yeah, it could be that too. It's definitely 
quite unclear because he's so nonchalant and Reverend Jim about everything. He right. just goes, oh, yeah, what, what did I give him? Oh, it was either a chiclet or a tranquilizer. Yeah. And so then the gang st- tries to get the coffee cup away because yeah. they're like, oh, God, well, that won't help. You can't drug Louie and still like get a job. That's not going to work. And so they go to take it. I think it's Tony who goes to take it. And then Danny DeVito is like, um, what are you doing? Get your own damn yeah. coffee. And then drinks his coffee. And then comedy, you know, physical comedy hilariousness happens. Yeah, I mean, this is a joke that I think at this point has has gotten pretty old in the world of TV and movies. Just the the person drunk or stoned when they don't realize it or they've been slipped something. And so, you know, it's Shia LaBeouf's parents and Transformers 2, you know, like they just... <laughs> They That's a love, random reference. They love to do this joke, <laughs> but this is a really good version. Of it. I think it's really funny. Yeah. So you've got he continues on his you know tirade of calling people's names and making fun of them, and then handing them their assignment for the day, and then slowly his head just like drops and droops and falls down on his little microphone that he's yelling yeah. into, and he just kind of sits there for you know a little while, like a few seconds, and it, and then he wakes back up. And immediately is like, hey, how are you doing? You have a good time out there today. And then he comes out of the cage and he starts singing a little song and yeah. does like a whole dance number. Yeah, he and spreads himself on the hood of a car. Everyone's singing along with him. Yeah, well, then eventually Christopher Lloyd joins him because everybody else at first is kind of looking to the oh, side. Yeah, like they don't know what to do. Right? Yeah, they're like, we're going to get in trouble. Like, geez, right. this is getting worse and worse. And then they cut to Christopher Lloyd like you know lurking in the corner and, just, and then he joins in yeah. like full voice like yeah. what was the song something just, about a moon on Moonlight Bay okay. the two of them I've never heard of this song before but the two of them it just goes to wide shot the two of them side by side if you think of like the framing of Tom Hanks and Robert Loja in Big on the on yes. the piano it's like on that on Moonlight Bay yeah this is very much uh, same vein as Jack Tripper in our our Fear of Flying episode, taking the tranquilizers oh, for yeah, his that's right. plane trip and having the crazy, you know, like old Hollywood dance well, number in the middle of the... It wasn't as big as a Hollywood dance routine, but yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, yeah, the two of them get together and it's just historic. Like, see, <laughs> you got to remember, Danny DeVito is like four feet tall. Right, he comes Lloyd. up at Christopher Lloyd's belly button, basically. <laughs> yeah, it really, it's like Mike Myers and Mini-Me doing the dance or something. Like, it's just wild. Uh, so yeah, that happens, and then we kind of move along to the to the DMV section. Yeah, right? so he gets up on the hood of the car and finishes the song, and then slides down, and then they sing it again. Like the, the whole cast kind of sings it again, like a little lullaby, yes. until he goes to sleep. And then somebody sneaks over and says, "Hey, do you think it would be okay if we gave Reverend Jim a job?" Right. And Louis like, yeah. Well, so there you have it. Whether it was whether it was his plan or not, it it worked. Yeah, Tra- dr- uh, tranquilizing him got him the job. <laughs> Kids don't try this at home. Yeah. So they go to the DMV, and this is where a big chunk of the episode takes place. 
we have first the the whole process of him filling out the application and there's all these funny little back and forths where they'll say like mental illness or narcotic addiction and he'll say oh that's a tough choice you yeah. know because <laughs> he just kind of takes everything wrong right he can't remember his last name and Mary Lou Henner is like well what was your father's name and he's like Ignatowski and she's like well do you think that might be your name and he's like yeah yeah uh, and then he has to take the test not the road test that we're going to see in all the other episodes. This is just the sit down at a little school desk at the DMV and take a written test. Right. And it's not separated at all from like the general population waiting room. There's just yeah. this area that has a little sign with desks that says testing area. And so the cast is standing at a table sort of right in front of where Jim is sitting at this desk. Yeah. And this is the part of the episode that... I'm, you know, I'm sure you've seen everybody. Yeah. I feel like it's so iconic. Yeah. My dad used to tell me about this as though it were like a funny anecdote that happened to him. And it's funny because when you look back on it, like all it is, is just a clever, fun little sitcom scene. But it just, it has carved out its place in the culture. And it's simply Christopher Lloyd you know, cheating on the test, whispering to the to his friends that are standing a few feet over and going, what does a yellow light mean? And again, Bobby, the guy from Greece, goes, slow down. And that's, he just what keeps... What does the yellow... <laughs> yeah, it's just the comedy of, of escalation. You know, right. he just keeps saying it slower and slower and he just doesn't get it. And yeah, it's just classic sitcom stuff. You know? Well, and it's also one of those things where you can see the cast oh, laughing, yeah. right? Well, no, yeah. Because they were, so they were told, like the direction that was given was just keep doing, like just keep saying those two lines until the audience stops laughing the audience, they did it at least four times, if not five. The audience never stopped laughing, nor did we. And by like the second or third one, the cast is losing it. Yeah. It was so funny. And they're also doing all of these, like, you know, the fake casual things. So there are, one of them is looking around real fast to see if anyone else is looking. And then one of them is, you know, whistling or whatever. It's, it's just very funny how they're all sort of like always in motion, you know, right. with this like weird nervous energy. And then, you know, long story short, he gets his license, right? We go back to the garage and Jim has a job and we get Judd Hirsch, right? Volunteering to be his first passenger. Right. And then he goes to pull out and the car's in reverse, not in um, regular motion drive. Why couldn't I remember that? <laughs> he goes and he backs up into one of the garage doors and uh and that's fun too you can see so it actually they actually have that happen and so that is how you can tell they're kind of in a studio like yeah. there's you can see like camera marks it's on the similar, floor again to the olympic marathon inside yeah. the, <laughs> the, the and Laverne and Shirley yeah where sometimes to do these crazy scenes they have to pull out a little further than they'd like to and you can see the edges of the set yeah it's fun yeah and so he backs up and like into this garage door and we can see sort of outside in quotation marks it's funny because it's very clearly not Reverend Jim 
behind the wheel in one of the scenes and then they like cut to the reaction shot and then come back to yep. it and him and Alex get out of the car. Insurance did not cover <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Christopher Lloyd and Judd Hirsch being in the cab. And of course, the final line is Christopher Lloyd saying, that'll be 90 cents, please, right. after he backed into the wall. Yeah, like I said, there's not a ton of carryover into the other episodes we're going to talk about. Uh, you've got the bureaucracy of the DMV and all of that that we'll see a little bit. But mostly this is just, uh, you know, super fun introduction of a character that's sort of vaguely on the theme of, of automotives and, uh, and driver licensing. Right. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to Facts of Life. Season 7, Episode 14, Tootie Drives. Yeah, so we talked about the facts of life on our very first podcast episode ever when Natalie was contemplating losing her virginity. We still cannot get to the older, good seasons of Facts of Life. We're no. still stuck in these later weird ones where they run a store or they have weird semi-siblings and the other ones have gone away. This is season seven. And so we've got, have, have we lost any of the major characters yet? No. So it's not that weird. It's mostly just yeah, this like is getting a little played This is Leachman. So okay. we still have, you know, Mrs. Garrett and all the girls are, are technically still in high school. They're, I mean, Tootie's the youngest. She's supposed to be 16 in this episode. The other girls are supposed to be like juniors and seniors. And so, yeah, we're all, we're still kind of solidly in that, like, they're still in school. But gosh, they just look, you know, Tootie, um, Kim Fields is legitimately 16 in this episode. But you would have, you could have fooled me. She looks like a grown ass woman. Yeah. And so do all the other girls. Yeah, it's season seven. So this episode is going to be about Tootie learning to drive. Like you said, she's the youngest. And it starts with, and this is going to be another, you know, recurring subtrope. She's waiting for her learner's permit. Right. right. We get a lot of permit versus permit uh, pronunciations across these episodes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she's waiting for it to come in the mail. Now, I'm pretty sure when I did that stuff, they would give you something like a temporary card then and there at the DMV when you, you know, took the little written test or whatever you had to do to get the learner's permit, right? You yeah, didn't have to I think wait. this is before the learner's permits were, or even driving licenses were cards. This is when they were just like handwritten pieces of paper that had your name on them. Yeah, but just for some reason, I remember them always giving you some temporary thing then and there like in case you wanted it right away. But in any case, it does eventually come in the mail. And so now she needs a car and she needs somebody, she needs a licensed driver to help her to, yeah, to, to take get her, her to around. practice. Exactly. And she doesn't want to take driver's ed because it's not available until the next semester and she'd have to wait another two months and she already had to wait a bunch of time for this permit to come through so she's just absolutely not having it she is convincing and whining and and whining and convincing until people will help her learn to drive yeah they all have their different objections blair has a fear of being seen in a volkswagen she says joe doesn't have the patience nat doesn't have the time natalie has a whole thing where she works in a mortuary now. I guess she used to work in a supermarket because they have all these little jokes at the beginning of like, she goes, well, last time I forgot where I was and said bag or box, which I thought was kind of funny that the 80s version of paper or plastic was bag or box, I guess. Yeah, I guess before plastic bags became like a thing, you had the box or you had 
paper bags. I'm imagining like the same number of plastic bags that are scrunched together at the end of a supermarket, having that many boxes stacked <laughs> up at the end of the checkout aisle. But anyway, Natalie works at a mortuary. That's going to play into things. But everyone has a reason why they don't want to help her. And then 2D, you know, just basically works their charm. And so it sort of switches over to, okay, everyone will help her. And we'll get the first of our many sort of camera planted at the, you know, end of the car. And we're going to have the two shot of the two people at the dashboard and the the foibles of learning how to drive. And in this case, it's going to be basically every cast member in turn having a little scene with Tootie, you know, imparting their wisdom just in the garage. Right. And so she stars in it, start with Natalie, right? Yes, it starts it's with Natalie, Natalie first. And Natalie is like, all right, and she's reading the manual and she's like, so giving her all these instructions, like you need to check for things in the way of, of opening the garage door. You need to check for things in the way of the doors and check. Yeah. And Tootie is just like, can't we just drive? Like, I, I need to practice driving. Not all of this stuff. I already passed the written part of the test. And she was like, do you want me to teach you or not? Yeah. And so everyone is just being very like, okay, we have to start from the very beginning. Well, yeah, it's like they all have one thing that they're obsessed with that is like beside the point or right. not necessarily even one thing. But yeah, Natalie is like, we must inspect the tires for proper inflation. And of course, when you get to Joe, she's like, there's 10 systems of a car. You got your steering, your transmission, your exhaust, you know, right. like she's going to mechanic school or something. And then they even have Mrs. Garrett come in. And then even, I guess, as a joke, they have little Mackenzie, the 12 year old kid with her for a while. Uh, you yeah. Know, holding his up wisdom. street signs that he's made. Yeah. And he's like, all right, what sign is this? And she's like I already did this part. He's like I took forever to make these signs. You're going to you're going to guess what they yeah, are. That's his contribution. It's kind of fun the way they string together the dialogue. So it's a little bit like the part in Austin Powers where it's like it looks like a giant Johnson and then it cuts to the next scene like they they make it so that one one piece of dialogue always feeds into the next. Yes. So like it's this one continuous thing. Which is kind of a cool thing for television. I don't know that they'd done a lot of that before. So it was kind of a cool little trick in the writing. Yeah. And then finally, she's just like, that's it. And she goes to like pull and she's like, I'm not dealing with this anymore. And she just takes off, pulls out of the garage. And Natalie's like, what are you doing? Yeah. And so... One particular connection that I have to Facts of Life is that it takes place in Peekskill, New York, which is very close to where I grew up. Right. right. Uh, but it was definitely not filmed in Peekskill, New York. It's no. filmed in California. So, which when, you could tell by the blue street signs. Uh, by, by the palm trees, the palm by trees. so many things. <laughs> yeah, they start doing these exterior shots. And we talk about it all the time, how we love the sitcoms that are your good old-fashioned multi-camera sitcoms where you're planted in a living room set or a kitchen set and it has that vibe to it but in the rare cases where they take the cameras outside it looks weird as hell and is just a totally different production style and in this case yeah it's cheap video footage of somebody driving, driving around down the street yeah <laughs> now there's a recurring thing in this show where 
All of Tootie's driving adventures are humorously matched up to Beach Boys songs. That's right. right? Those <laughs> round, corporate round, whores, the around, Beach Boys. Yes, they could not sell the rights to their songs fast enough in the eighties, and so you get <laughs> they like they had to play for the they had to pay for Brian Wilson's drug problems. Yeah, I guess so. They they have like five or six of these needle drops where you know whenever they show her driving, they match it up with a different song, whether it's. Uh, Dead Man's Curve for one of them when they're showing her go around a turn or whatever. But just like you and me, Tootie fails her first test because we see the the newspaper thing come on the screen that says Peekskill Press with the headline, (laughs) Tootie Fails. Tootie Fails. And I was confused because her failing wouldn't be front page news so i'm like no, is it a joke funny right. yeah it was just a joke but i guess i guess i was confused at first if this was a fantasy like this seemed like the kind of thing that would happen in a pink bordered saved by the bell fantasy sequence because she's worrying about failing yes and so and because it happened so quickly and the general like narrative storytelling skills on display here aren't always so rock solid i was kind of unsure for a good part of the episode like did she fail her first time and is taking it for a second time because we don't see any of that test we just see her go out the door and then this peak skill press newspaper thing i didn't take it that way i took it as like they didn't have they didn't want to have a scene of her coming back in and being like well i failed it'll be okay next time no 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 because they had all these other scenes that they needed to get to including her taking the driving test for real like later on so just as like a quick we're gonna let that news get out there then okay Okay, Tootie fails. All right, now she's trying to schedule more time to practice driving because the reason she failed was that nobody really let her drive when they were doing her practice sessions. And she didn't want to reschedule because it took her so long to get the first test scheduled in the first place and so she was so mad and she's mad at everybody and now nobody wants to let her use the car again and she can't use her she can't use the Volkswagen for the second test because Mrs. Garrett is going somewhere she has an engagement she has to be somewhere so now she's trying to find someone who will let her have a car for the test and Blair has a BMW and she's like, you're not getting in it. It's stick shift. You can't, and she doesn't know how to drive a stick shift. And so, and then that's when we hear from uh, Joe that, you know, you can't do it in a motorcycle. That's different. And then that's how we end up with Natalie kind of giving in like always and stealing, not stealing, but using her company car, which is a hearse. Yeah. So we get a fun sitcom-y scenario of taking your driving test in a hearse, which I do genuinely wonder if they would let you do that or like any sort of weird specialty vehicle like that. If if they would let you take your normal, you know, I mean, like, I don't know. I like Natalie says it would just be like driving a station wagon. Yeah, so you don't I guess have to have so. a special license. But for a it's hearse. not exactly. It's more like driving a limousine. Right, because they are pretty long, I think. But I don't know. She takes the test with the hearse. Natalie is like hiding in the back and she keeps teasing her that there's a dead, but she, she keeps teasing her and us basically because we don't really know this whole time. Is there a dead body in the back of the car or not? Right. Um, but then we find out not because the boss from the mortuary calls and says, hey, are you still out getting it cleaned? And she's like, yeah. And he was like, all right, well, when you're done, there's a pickup. Yeah. 
Okay, so you're sorry. So no, nobody in the back. Until later, because she says, okay, I'll go do the pickup. Yeah. The instructor or administrator uh, gets into the car, and this is probably established lore on the show, but this is the first time I learned that Tootie is Dorothy Ramsey. Right. That's her real name, which she doesn't even respond to. You know, she has to sort of do a double take to be like, oh, yeah, that's me, but everyone calls me Tootie. And uh, so he gets in, and they start their their test to more Beach Boys music. Right. Natalie has to hide in the back because you're not allowed to have an extra person in the car when you're taking a driving test. No passengers allowed. And, you know, of course, the instructor makes a comment on the fact that it's a hearse and whatever. And then the phone rings in the car and he like looks at Tootie and Tootie's like, uh, 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 and then she answers it. So she's yeah. talking on the phone during her driving test. And this is going to be another sub trope. This happens again in one of the other episodes. And it's just funny, like, it's always been dangerous, but it just had a different connotation. Like the whole idea of a car phone and taking a call in the phone was this like weird luxury thing in the eighties. And so, yeah, it's just funny that now it would be even more discouraged, I think, but it would just be much more sort of uh, banal, you know? Well, but also totally, and now it's illegal. Then it wasn't, you know, most places you can't do that. You can't have an actual phone to your ear that's handheld. So she passes the phone call back to Natalie. And so the guy figures out that there's a person in the back and he's like, I can't, you know, this test can't continue. We have to go back. And Tootie works her whiny magic and gets what she wants. Like she always does. And he's like, okay, but you, you can stay back there, but you have to be silent. Yeah. Well, I have to say this DMV instructor, he's prickly, but you know, he's, he's got a heart at the end of the day. Yeah, He is is nothing like that crazy lady that I tested with. (laughs) No, he is portrayed as, you know, he starts out as your sort of standard, like intimidating adult, a little gruff and, you know, he's kind of an older guy. But then as it goes on, you know, he's more confused and bewildered by all the wacky sitcom stuff that's happening around him. And he, I don't know, he just has a twinkle to him that I'm like, I kind of like this guy. He's not really so mean. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, he definitely puts up with a lot of crap and uh, just kind of rolls with it, I guess. So then they get the second call that says you got to pick up and you need to go in and get this. And Natalie tries to get out of it and is like, well, I, they're saying here at the car wash, it's going to be a little longer. And okay, all right, I guess we'll go. So then Tootie's like, we have to go, please. We can continue the test on the way there. And somehow convinces this man to let the test be this random drive to this other location to pick up a dead body. Yeah. And then we get like uh, hitchhikers or like a group of people at a disabled car, you know, like That's a right. family on the road that needs help. And so this reminded me of the part in Dumb and Dumber where they, they're picking up more and more people and they're singing the Mockingbird song in, in the car. Like it's just those funny jump cuts to the next scene where there's like twice as many people stuffed into the same, you know, little front seat of this hearse. And this poor DMV guy is just like, oh, I'll get a load of this. And you yeah. got this whole family in there. Well, and so Tootie convinces him that they have to pull over for the 
these stranded motorists because page, you know, whatever section, whatever of the driving manual says that it is your responsibility as a responsible driver to help, you know, or bring assistance to any person on the roadway, stranded, whatever, whatever. And so that's, he's right. he's the like, DMV I can't argue. The guy's like, I can't argue with that. Um, it's in our manual. So, okay, yeah. I guess we have to pull over and help these people. The manual is a guide for morality as well as, you know, how to drive. Uh, but so, yeah. what they didn't think of is that there is a phone in this car. Yeah. Call someone to help them. <laughs> yes, it's very silly. But yeah, you get this sitcom scene with, you know, eight or nine people stuffed into the front seat of this car. And, uh, you know, the rest is history, right? She ends up getting her license, doesn't she? Yep. She passes after all of those shenanigans. Yeah. So look, in terms of tracking the trope, we can really kind of sink into this one. We've got, like I said, just that that shot looking over the hood of the car at, you know, the, the driver and the passenger teaching them. We're going to get that in all of these episodes. And we're going to get that thing of like the process of teaching someone how to drive says more about the teacher than the students, right? And everyone's yeah. going to have their wacky style of doing that. And so, yeah, we're going to see that continue with Sister, Sister. Season 2, Episode 9, 2 for the road. Yep. So we talked about Sister, Sister back in our old friend New Trouble episode. Uh, We like this show. I do anyway. I have a sort of fond, positive association with this, even though I don't think it's really a top-level sitcom, you know, maybe uh, if you sort of grade on the curve of the kind of, you know, family style thing that it is, I think it's just that Tia and Tamara are really charming yes. and Jack Hay is really fun. Uh, funny, yes, uh, exactly. And so, yeah, I feel like it's the charisma of them that just kind of make me go like, oh, yeah, let's put that one on the list. I could watch a Sister, Sister. Well, and for me, it was one of those shows that I didn't, it wasn't appointment television. I mean, I think it's, this show started in like 94. So oh, yeah. this would have been kind of in that same era as Boy Meets World hitting its stride in like season three when I was in later high school and just busy and not watching yeah. TV as much. And so I think I never got into it in the way that I think I would have if I had been a few years younger. But that is to say, every time it was on and I was home and then I'd watch it, you know, just because it was like, oh, this is a fun show. And like you said, they're very funny. Yeah, I definitely was too old for this when it came out. But this is another one I watched like half ironically, like Sabrina, when it would come on TBS in the mornings when I was getting ready for work. And I didn't like watching the news before work. So I would put on, you know, ABC Family or TBS and watch one of these goofy shows while I was, you know, making coffee and stuff. I just think of it as like a fun vibe when I think of this show. And every time we watch it, it takes me by surprise when we get the Ferris Bueller, Zach Morris, you know, address to camera. To camera, breaking that fourth wall. But this time it's a really fast one. It's just, we need to get our driver's licenses so that we could go wherever we want. And one of them goes, yeah, we could drive to Hawaii. Cut to intro. Right. And the other sister looks at her like, "Mm," and then commercial. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this one actually hit a lot of notes for me, just in terms of we've got the two of them learning how to drive and they have very different personalities. And so this made me want to ask you, we've talked about our actual driving test experiences, but who taught you to drive? (laughs) It's funny you ask that. My dad taught me how to drive mostly. I think once I was in that stage where I had my permit and I was more or less 
competent, they would let me drive, you know, like what happens in these shows or what the kids want to happen. They would let me drive basically wherever we went, I think, for that sort of training period. But in terms of the initial teaching, it was all my dad. And he would get annoyed at my mom when she wouldn't want to be in the car, like when he would let me drive because she was nervous. And he kind of had the attitude like, don't you want us all to get killed? Like, why are you just looking out for yourself? So yeah, it, it was mostly my dad. So did you have lessons on like, you know, neighborhood streets or parking oh, sure. lots? Like how did he? Yeah, all that kind stuff. Of- I mean, I grew up in the suburbs. And so I assume, you know, it was a pretty standard thing. You start in some wide open parking lot somewhere that's got nobody around. And then you sort of graduate to the local side streets where there aren't any cars. And then, yeah, little by little, you work your way up to, you know, the highways. Right. Is that how you did it? I mean, yes. And also it was my dad, both of my parents. So I had this experience like we see in a lot of shows, in a lot of TV shows, where both of my parents tried to teach me how to drive. And one of the personalities sort of worked and the other personality didn't. My mom and I were at loggerheads and like every little thing she said, I was like yelling at her and she was yelling at me and it just was not going to work. We were, we're too much alike. And didn't. Was she like Natalie in Facts of Life? Like you need to check your proper tire pressure before you can ignite the vehicle? That no, kind of she, my mom's, my mom is an amazing teacher. I'm sure she was just being teacherly, but we are so much alike that we get annoyed at the same little things. And like, if I couldn't even handle it for a second, yeah. if I thought she was like condescending to me in some way, I would just like launch at her. We had a really hard relationship in my teens. So that like, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me now at all looking back on it that that's just like failed miserably my dad is much more laid back and so that worked out fine like he was the one to teach me to drive because I didn't scream at him the way I screamed at my mom and yeah but so but my dad was a little bit more of a stickler he had some of the Joe rules from facts of life I wasn't allowed to learn how to drive or I wasn't allowed to get my license until I knew how to change the oil and rotate the tires that's going to come up again in eight simple rules exactly so those were two things that he was like, if you you have to know like common car maintenance, you need to know how to change a tire and rotate the tires. You also need to know how to change the oil. My dad has changed our oil like my entire life. We never went to like a Jiffy Lube or anything like that. So that was something that was a must. And I learned on a stick shift. So mm-hmm. like the big driving lesson that I remember was in a parking lot that had a hill. And one of the things my dad made me learn how to do was... A, before we could go out on roads, I had to be able to hold the car without using the brake on a hill because it was a clutch. And so you can do that with the gas and the clutch. And so I had to be able to do that. Otherwise, if you're on a hill at a stoplight and you need to go and you don't have that timing down right, you're going to roll backwards and hit somebody, which I mean, Florida flat, so not many hills, but just in case my dad was like, this is a must. Yeah, so we get, yeah, just like you said, this episode is going to be all about the sort of teacher and student style, because we get, you know, this is the whole hook of Sister Sister, you have these two different parents, as well as these two different twins. Now, one just overall thing about Sister Sister, for better or worse, they do not hold your hand through the distinguishing of Tia and Tamara. They don't do the thing like Patty Duke, where they're going to have different hairstyles. 
Right. You know, they dress differently, but not that differently. You know, I really like their style. One of them has like this Che Guevara type look where she's got the long coat and like the beret. The other one has the bucket hat. So yeah, they have a very similar sense of style and they are very much identical twins at this at this point. So it is tough uh, to, to, to figuring out who's who. Their their whole thing is that one of them is going to be, you know, kind of wild and, uh, you know, just wants to get going and then very sort of like presumptuous with her whole driving attitude. And one of them is going to be super nervous and timid. And meanwhile, the dad is also nervous and timid and the mom is Jack Hay. Right, exactly. So you've got and but the kids are the opposite, right? So Tamara, the one who has the dad in this, she's the one that is like, let's go. I just want to drive. She, like, steps on the gas. She tries really fast. And Tia, who is Jack A's daughter in this, is scared. She doesn't want to go over 20 miles an hour. She's got people honking and yelling at her because she's blocking traffic by going so slow. And her mom is like, come on, you just need to go. You just need to try. And Tamara's dad is like, oh, my God, slow down. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Freaking out. And so they decide that... That the best way to teach the two of them is that they swap. So the dad is going to teach Tia and Jack A is going to teach Tamara. And then they go to this like big empty parking lot and they have this great overhead shot of the cars kind of circling around. Yes. The continuing c- the tradition of having randos drive the cars that look nothing like the Absolutely. People. Well, but I was like shocked at the precision driving they were doing in this like a figure eight they were doing um concentric donuts Uh and like so the one was you know inside the other one and i was like that is really hard like they're gonna crash like professional drivers would crash if they were trying to do these like concentric circle donuts and they did yeah uh so totally continuing this trope of yeah just shuffling through like we get a little bit of this person teaching a little bit bit of that person teaching totally continuing the trope of the exterior shots looking wildly different than the interior shots even more so in this case because sister sister is a newer show so the homebound parts of it just look nicer and then these exterior shots look crazy Well, yeah they're very clearly on some like studio backlot behind uh like a big you know warehouse building that's where they are it's funny yeah and so one of them is being taught in the limousine right because they get a phone call just like in Facts of Life. There's no. a phone call. So moment. the dad owns a limo service, but he himself ha- okay. just he has, has a nice car. car. But there is a phone in that car. Okay. You know, I I don't know if he also uses that as like a black car service, like that car um, as a service vehicle. But he does. He's the well more well to do business owner. He's right. got the There's nice. There's the jokes car. about his car talks. There's this like, please open the door. Yeah. Please put on your seatbelt. Whereas Jack A just the has car the car is now. Disarmed. Yeah. But so he has a car phone in there. So he, I guess the joke there is that Tamara gets calls from her friends while while she's trying to learn how to drive with him. And it's just like, oh, you want me to pick you up at the mall? Sure, I'll pull a Yui. And, you know, so that's... And he's like, no, no, Yui's, no. <laughs> yeah. So that's the sort of car phone humor in there. Uh, while we're on Ray's limo service, we should mention there's oh, an ongoing yes. B story here that is going to work its way into the A story. 
And boy, are we in this very specific moment with our sort of sitcom grappling of the gay and lesbian world and like how we're going to look at them. Basically, Ray's limousine service, his ad that he bought in the Yellow Pages says gay limousine service. And so he's all put out about that. But the jokes... There are no jokes that are particularly homophobic or harsh. No, it's weird the way it sets up. Because when he, the yellow pages get delivered and, and he reveals this, it's gay, you know, gay limousine service or whatever. And he and Jack A have this scene where he's horrified and she's laughing at him. And they don't go further than that. They just sort of let that lie. And I'm sitting there like, oh, God, where's this going to go? Oh, God, oh, God. And they just let it lie. But it definitely tees it up and it gets the laugh of gay. Oh, yeah. And that first scene, they don't dispense with it that quickly. Like there there's a extended exchange because there are jokes about him going like, I need to call the company and get this straight. I mean, get it corrected. You know, when he talks about like, oh, my God, my mom gets the yellow pages, you know, and there's. Oh, and and Jack Hay says, was she overbearing? You know, implying like maybe (laughs) that's why you're gay. So there's a lot of what I always call the snickering attitude in the 90s, especially the late 90s, where like, we don't have a problem with gay people anymore. And we'll get to the police officer who comes and is presented completely like without any issues that I can see. Like, it's totally, you know, the the messaging is fine other than the fact that we can't say the word gay without snickering, you right. know, without it's laughing. It's like that Seinfeld episode, like, not that that's a bad thing. Yeah, and so you just see that all throughout the episode, that it's at this weird point where we we don't really have any problem with gay people, but it's still going to be the entire B-plot of this story right. is just that his ad says gay instead of Ray. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, they get, they crash into each other when doing this crazy thing, right? And so that's going to tie into that B story because the, the policeman shows up and, uh, it's a little weird the way Ray, the dad is just like, oh, we don't need any help here. Just call us an ambulance if you would. And the guy's like, okay, sure. Like the police, like Ray kind of takes control of the situation. The cop doesn't seem to like mind just being kind of told what to do, but he, uh, he recognizes Ray and goes like, oh, you're the guy from the gay limousine service. Well, I need accommodations for the gay policeman's ball. Right. Which was that really a thing in like 96? That's pretty before it's time. I don't know. But yeah, like I said, this guy's portrayal, he reminds me of Andre Brower's character in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Like he's just this kind of big barrel chested, deep voiced guy and does not play into any stereotype. Like it's not played one way or the other. He's just a dude that is gay and needs a ride to his gay policeman's ball. Yeah. And was really excited to see that there was now like a concierge type service just for him. Yeah. So that's what I mean. Like it kind of it like went in that different place that I was like, oh, all right. I'm sure that if we had seen that at the time, I would have been like, oh my gosh, these people get it. They get it. They're not making fun of the gays. This is how it should be man yeah uh, i don't know yeah we'll, we'll get a little bit more of that at the end but the real outcome of all of this is that we're going to focus more on tia she's all the more timid now yeah she wants to give it up she's like i'm good i don't need to get back in a car i don't need to drive anymore and she doesn't want to tell her mom because her mom is so overly supportive that 
she just doesn't want to she doesn't want to have to say that tell her mom that she's scared and doesn't want her mom to support her to like get back out on the road so she doesn't want to say anything to her but she does and then her mom surprises her by being like okay if that's your choice that's okay yeah so the the dad says to Lisa, like, you both have a problem. Like, you're both scared now because Jack Hay is kind of like, it's kind of like my mom. Like, I don't want to get in the car with somebody that doesn't know how to drive. And then we get this dream sequence, Tia's dream, again, not unlike a pink-edged Saved by the Bell type dream where she's a bride. She's dressed in the bridal thing. Oh, her right. mom is still chauffeuring her around because she never learned how to drive. And then she's like a middle-aged mom. This is all still like in the car. She's right. in the back seat with her kids and her mom's a little old lady now. It's still chauffeuring her around. And so, yeah, it's this Yeah, anxiety. and then her mom dies. Yeah. And she's like, oh, no. Yeah, she goes, I gave you a bus pass or something yeah. before she My dies. mom spent her whole life driving me. <sighs> yeah, and so, you know, it's setting up in this, you know, classic sitcom-y way that she's she's scared to drive and she thinks she's never going to get her license. And she is okay with that until she has that dream and realizes that she doesn't want to ruin her mom's life by making her responsible for her forever. So she goes and she talks to her mom again, and then Lisa kind of owns up that she too was a little scared uh, for her and you know that maybe this was just too much and too big of a step and it and also happen. reveals all of these past instances where she was secretly overprotective she has this new oh that's right i followed you tree to tree yeah, she keeps going uh you know your first day of school you thought i just let you go i was actually following the school bus tree to tree and then she goes <laughs> first date tree to tree she keeps on saying tree to tree and yeah so it's this fun new dimension to lisa's character that i'm actually not as laid back as you think wacky as i am i am actually more overprotective than you know but i needed you to feel like the training wheels were off so that you know you could fly and yeah. every single time i let you you did yeah so you know it was i i was just doing the tree to tree for me <laughs> yeah do they even take the test or does it just end with them kind of going like, okay. I'll keep practicing. Yeah. 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 I feel like maybe that's it. Because yeah, the, the, as far as I can remember, it ends with another phone call for Ray's gay limousine service. And just again, like that snickering attitude, there's dialogue where Ray's like, you know, I was resistant at first, but these guys are big tippers and very tidy and yes. huge laugh lines. So again, just, just that, you know, kind of yep. dated snickering Riding attitude. Riding that line. Yep. Yeah. The only other thing I guess to mention about this is there is a part where in one of their little heart to hearts between Lisa and the dad, Jack Hay says, I'm scared, you know, and that's going to be a recurring thing in our Eight Simple Rules episode, you know, digging into the psychology of the parents even more so than the kids and how it's scary for everybody. Yeah. Because Facts of Life didn't really have that. It was right, more of just a because we didn't have the parents. It was like all of her friends, her school friends were going to teach her how to drive. Yeah, Miss Garrett, Mrs. Garrett didn't really care. Yeah, Mrs. Garrett was like happy to help, but she wasn't like in the same way of uh, yeah. uh, well, the way actually, a parent would be. Now that you mention it, I do have a note that Mrs. Garrett's thing, she goes, keep your eyes moving so you're always aware oh, of right. dangers and hazards all around you. And they so, have this great scene of both Tootie and Charlotte Ray, like their eyes just spinning around in their head. Yeah, so Mrs. Garrett is kind of overprotective, but in more of a funny way. Yeah. So yeah, all right, we'll continue tracking the trope then and move on to eight simple rules this is season one episode four wings yes now we should say the full 
Title of this show is Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter. Amy, do you have any thoughts about the premise of this show vis-a-vis society and <laughs> sexism and patriarchy, etc.? And all of those things. So I didn't watch this show. I maybe saw maybe one episode. It was just not a show I watched, but loved John Ritter. So was like, oh, this I'm super excited to go back to it. Are all of those gender roles that drive me crazy on full fucking display here? Absolutely. And it just, uh, I I still, like, this being a first watch, there were definitely moments in the show where I was, like, biting my tongue, like, that's annoying. They set up Kaylee Cuoco's character as an idiot, and her dad has zero respect for her over and over again. That her is MO shown. is always get boys to do stuff for you. Or just get people to do stuff for yeah. you. So like that's kind of that that and he has zero respect for her. He has a lot of affection for the other daughter, so much so that like I wouldn't be surprised if these two sisters hated each other for real, not just in the like funny haha way that they were and this acting. Is a straightforward biological nuclear family. Yes. There's no weird mixing and matching. No weird mixing and matching. He has a very strong preference and connection yeah. with the younger daughter. Well, they're different personalities. Yes. You're supposed to understand. You can tell immediately one of them is a serious-minded, creative type person, and the other one is a bimbo. Right. But... She can't possibly be a bimbo because she is pretty smart. Like, she, yeah. you know, she's really able to kind of get the things that she wants and get it done. And it, it annoys me that Katie Seagal's character does not, like, stand up to him more. She kind of lets him go off on this whole, like, tirade about how he, she shouldn't be driving. And look, at the heart of it all is that they know that the reason the dad acts this way is because he loves loves them, right? He loves her so much and he's so scared about his oldest daughter growing up that he is acting in this really irrational and dickish way. And he's just another sitcom dumb dad learning the lessons over and over again that we see but yet he doesn't learn them because the show is called Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter with all the misogyny that kind of falls in line there. Yeah, just the weirdness surrounding the dad-daughter thing where it's like falls somewhere between the normal like parents need to be parents and set boundaries for their teenage kids and on the other side this weird patriarchy and double standards that you pat your boys on the back for scoring with the ladies and you keep your daughters locked up in a little cell like yeah it's just got it's it's dripping with all of that weirdness what i immediately thought watching this was you know the whole spiel that i've given several times now about michael j fox and his family ties character that 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 Alex P. Keaton role is inherently obnoxious and arrogant and unlikable, and his skill was bringing something to it beyond what the dialogue was that you always knew there was this love and humor, and yeah. he didn't really mean it, or he thought he means it, but he didn't, or just, he, he just was able to say everything in this way that kept you on his side and made it funny, even if he was saying something sexist or wrongheaded or whatever. And John Ritter in this role, I think, is at least attempting to be exactly that. And I could totally see if Michael J. Fox's life had gone another way. He could have been in this role. Yeah, if he'd wanted to play one of these same samey dad characters. Look, 
what it does that a lot of the other shows that we've talked about that are more about the husband and wife relationship, what this show does that those don't is that it has a heart. Yeah. And by the end of the episode, I was like, oh, even though like he said so many things throughout the episode that made me want to punch him. But like it still it was able to bring it back around either through his charm or the writing or just everything about it. Like this cast really loved each other. And you can see that from like they they acted like a family that we were just seeing like a bad day or a bad week in their family as opposed to it's always like this all the time yeah the mom is katie seagal former peg bundy who mm-hmm. is you know i feel like at this point it just she's almost like the meryl streep of like mediocre tv shows you know <laughs> she's- like she's really really good she's not necessarily always in the best stuff but yeah this has this characteristic to it where it does have have a lot of heart you're right and at the same time in this early 2000s pre me too movement it's like you see the last gasps of some of these attitudes that make it feel more dated than the dick van dyke show or something coming out you know in the 60s no it's like when and this is much later than that Uh, you know a few friends of mine had some kids a few years ago and I was out at a backyard barbecue over the summer visiting some of my friends and one of the guys and was talking with one of the other guys who had just had little girls and they were like, yeah, she knows that she's never going to be able to date until she's 40. And I'm like, you're gross. Yeah. You Like it is 2022. What are you doing? Like, do not talk like that about your daughter and kind of went off on like my two friends husbands because I was like, that's gross. Don't say that. It is just what you're seeing on display is the psych psychological phenomenon of a man wrestling with having to consider a female human being in a different way than he ever has before. Yeah. And it's, I guess, like sort of at the time maybe, but never really culturally okay for like the dad to put these stop gaps in place to like keep the woman from being able to grow up in the world. But it wasn't true the other way around. Yeah. If it's a boy, it's going to be like, he's going to have the biggest schlong and he's going to get laid before anybody else. Or you have the joke that Jack A made, which is then it's the overbearing mother and look what she's done. She's ruined the son instead of, you know, this, this other way that like now, like the, the dad is the conquering hero for protecting his his daughter. The other thing I'll say about this show is that you've got Kaylee Cuoco. She gives as good as she gets. Like oh, yeah. she does not put up with any of her dad's crap. And she knows that she's going to get away with it in the long run. She is like, yes, she's this bimbo character, but she is smart enough to go toe to toe with a grown ass man and be like, this isn't right. And you can't tell me that. Yeah. And I would assume or at least hope that this is going to be a legally blonde type situation where she's somebody who is dismissed as as being a dumb bimbo, but is actually not. And right. that she has some some substance. But somewhere. I haven't seen it enough. No, to know. me either. And look, she is gorgeous. You know, they yeah. all they have her always. This is like early nineties or sorry, early two thousands. So they have her in the the super low rise jeans, like the Tara Reed look, you know, yeah. the long like yeah. flat iron Whitney blonde Spears. hair and you know, the belly button may be shown, but always the midriff, that space between your belly button and your pubic hair yeah, is definitely. always on display. 
display. Yeah, they, your pubes are on display. They just are not shaved there. off. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's got all of that going on. But again, at the center of this show is John Ritter, and so everything just comes out with this kind of laid back, just just that John Ritter charm that you know keeps everything feeling light and fun. And so let's get into the episode. Same deal, right? We right. got the learner's permit. Uh, I need to learn how to drive. I need to learn how to drive. Somebody teach me. And, you know, same thing. Like, he's all uncomfortable. He doesn't want to go with her. There's this whole, like, side story. So the mom is trying to say, hey, this will be great. If she gets her license, she's going to be able to help us run errands yeah. and do all the things. Like, you forgot to pick up the milk the other night. And he's like, what? I didn't forget to pick up the milk. And she's like, mm, you know. Yeah, it's a recurring <laughs> thing throughout the show is, yes, this milk that they keep forgetting. So, of course, when I was reading all about this, you know, um, John Ritter tragically died on the set of this show. About a year from when this episode was filmed, at the very beginning of season two, they were filming, I think, like episode three or rehearsing for episode four, and he fell, like he fell out, um, had an aortic aneurysm and died, like right there on the set with everybody. And so when they took their hiatus and then came back uh, for the season one episode, or sorry, season two, episode four, the story was that he had fallen over. He had had this uh, aortic aneurysm while out at the grocery store getting milk. As a tribute to this particular joke? Just as, no, just as like that being something that was like full circle, you know, as part of the show. So when I heard that and I was like, oh my gosh, that's like how he dies, <laughs> you know, in the, in the lore of the show is that he was out getting milk. And so anyway, it just was really kind of like abrupt when they said in the show, oh, you know, this like constant joke about out getting milk milk because really all I know about this show is that John Ritter died while filming it, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, cause I didn't watch it. Yeah. He's like, we said, you know, he's, he's being kind of mean and unreasonable with the daughter and just selling it with the John Ritter charm, but he doesn't want her to take the test or he doesn't want to teach her. Uh, and he keeps like putting all of these sort of obstacles in her way. There's a part that I noted because I was with John Ritter on this. She quizzes him. She says, like, if I can prove that I know more about cars than you or more about driving than you, then can I learn to drive? He says, okay, fine. And one of the questions is, where are you supposed to put your hands on the wheel like it was a clock? And John Ritter says, 10 and 2, 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock. And the daughter goes, no, that's wrong. Since they invented airbags, it's been nine and three. Right. I did not get the memo about that. And John Ritter even says, oh, I would have thought that would have been big news. And that was exactly the thought that I had. It's like, yeah, why didn't they tell everybody? I do 10 and two. Well, because nobody talks about that kind of stuff, right? It's that it's in the manual and the, and somebody tells you 10 and two when you're a kid and that's it. But no, it's she's not wrong. It has been nine and three. Yeah. But so, yeah, there's a point where he says, you can drive when I say you can drive, you know, and I just noted, yeah, like he's being kind of mean and unreasonable. He says that she has to know how to change the oil and change a tire, just right. like my dad said you had to. And so she gets her boyfriend or the guy she's dating or whatever to change the oil in the car for. Yeah. John Ritter walks out to the garage to see how she's doing and there's you know his pair of legs underneath the car and so he's like oh why did you run somebody over yeah, he's like who are the legs <laughs> yeah but no you know he recognizes from the 
voice. It's uh, Kyle or something, yeah. whatever her, her boyfriend, boyfriend is, or this guy. This character is super obnoxious. I have to say, I guess that's sort of the joke. You're supposed to be on John Ritter's side when this kid is just sort of obliviously, you know, just kind of being like disrespectful and annoying. Um, well, and so I think, again, this is we're early, this is early season one, right? So the first episode, they lay out the eight rules. And it is this very long monologue, like you can read it on IMDb, you go back and watch it. But it's this really long monologue of very ridiculous rules about dating her specifically. And this is the boy that gets that like monologue yelled at him. So he sort of has this same relationship with John Ritter's character that Kaylee Cuoco has, which is like this guy just talks and talks and talks, but he's ridiculous. And we can only listen to like 1% of the things that he's saying, because that's all that's real. Yeah. And he is not intimidated at all. There is no like, oh, Mr. Like he gets in his face and he just like he's, he's oblivious, if anything, he just sort of of, yeah, like you said, just doesn't care. And so it basically comes to a head when John Ritter keeps sort of breaking his promises of like, well, okay, you can drive if you, you know, if you do this and that. And so Kaylee Cuoco steals the car and just goes. Yeah. She's like, that's it. You're not being fair, you know? And so she has said that she would like pick somebody up at the mall or something. um, And she was already supposed to have her driver's license by this point. But he keeps, her dad keeps putting all these fake obstacles in her way and even Even when she gets over them or around them, he throws up another one. And we're, you know, we, Katie Seagal's character is watching all of this. She's not getting involved. She's letting him kind of take the lead on this whole thing because he's so blustery and upset about it. But every time they have a conversation, like in bed at night or in the kitchen when nobody else is around, she is like, you're being a dick. Yeah, there's a point, you know, pretty far into the episode where we get the first real break in in John Ritter's facade, you know, where they're in bed and she says, how do you feel when you think about Bridget driving, you know, and that's what's so good about Kate Seagal is that she she sells you on that change in tone like she sort of understands she makes you understand like we're sort of downshifting from that wacky sitcom energy and now we're going to have a real conversation and the two of them go there you know and it's a simple exchange but she asks him how he feels and he says scared I feel scared and she says you can't prevent your daughters from growing up just because you're scared and that's that's basically the thesis of the show. Right. And it is, it's so, he looks so small yeah. and miserable. He's laying in his bed yeah. and the covers are up to his chin. Because he knows it's inevitable. It's yeah. like there's nothing he can do. It's all coming crashing down. Exactly. And he's just, he he just, it, it really hits it right. You know what I mean? That like we talked about with Ray Romano and some of these other ones where they just kind of like never learn the lesson. They There is no, there is no tone change. There is no comeuppance. There is no realization like this it happens in this moment and he still doesn't he's not ready to give up but he at least is like has a real moment where he admits like that his motivations aren't because he's dad and he's right it's because he's scared yeah and again john ritter can sell the wheels turning inside his mind so with not a lot of time and dialogue you you empathize with what he's going through absolutely and so 
Bridget, Kaylee Cuoco's character, comes home escorted by a police officer. And, you know, John Ritter's furious. And this is, of course, you know, what I took note of. They, she got pulled over because of the expired registration. Right. You know, well, like but before dad. we find that out, it's why did, you know, you got pulled over because you're an unlicensed driver. What'd you do? Did you get in an accident? Yeah. Did you whatever? And she's like, no. And he's like, oh. And he looks at the cop and he goes, so you just pulled her over because she's good looking, huh? And it was so like, like that it made it, like my, oh, my haunches went right up. I was like, oh, yeah. I don't like that a dad would say that about his daughter. I don't like it. Right. And but then, then he gets his comeuppance. Yeah, he gets his comeuppance immediately because the cop's like, no, the registration was expired. Right. So now they've almost got this dilemma that Paul, John Ritter's character, sort of recognizes that Bridget, the daughter, has done this unacceptable thing. And she's got to be grounded and all that stuff. But the mom has also sort of convinced him that he's been being unreasonable this whole time. So he almost like recuses himself from the situation. It's like, go to your room, you're definitely grounded. But then the following day, he sort of lets the mom kind of take over. And he just sits there grumbly eating his breakfast cereal while the mom says like, you you, you can take the test if, if you want to. Yeah, the mom's like, so um, I thought that today I would take you to get your driving license. And... Kaylee Cuoco's like, what, what? And she looks over at the dad and the dad's like, mm, well, okay. And so that's, and then, then they have the realization that like, so she gets it and they come back in the afternoon and Katie Seagal's like, why don't you go to the store and get the milk? You know, and John Ritter's like, yeah, because your mother forgot it yesterday. Yeah. So we get that back around again. And so it's like once the mandate is ripped off, he's happy and and is okay with her running this errand. It's only the errand, though, because she's still grounded. Yeah. And then it ends with this flashback scene where John Ritter watches her pull out of the driveway and goes into this whole you know, this yeah, whole, like old dream sequence, but like a memory in black and white of yeah. him loosening the training wheels on her little bike and letting her go. Yeah. And so her, you have like, I don't know, a, a five or six year old Bridget. And then the, the younger sister is there playing nearby because then when it sort of cuts back to the present day, she's in the passenger seat with Bridget as she's driving away. So it really takes you like very explicitly on this uh, mental journey. That, that John Ritter is going through as he sort of acknowledges like, yep, she's growing up and the training wheels are coming off. Yep. And so, yeah, in terms of looking back on these and tracking the trope, that's it. I mean, that that is the thesis statement for all of these, except for the wacky Christopher Lloyd one, right? It's all about, you know, as a parent learning to let go. I mean, I guess Facts of Life was a little more just kind of loosey-goosey. You know, it's it's just fun learning to drive and, right. and having a wacky adventure. Yeah, well, and not having the parents around. So you didn't have that angle of it. But it's interesting, like the way the, the timeline of the shows played out. We had the adult who who was just kind of getting a license, but kind of already knew how to sort of drive. Then you had the teenager that's at a boarding school. So she was learning from friends and, you know, trusted adults, but not parents. Then you had like the blended family, two different parents, personality things. And then you had like traditional family, dad freaking out. So it kind of moved through yeah. all the different ways that this might 
Well, and it also happen. it gets more serious. Like right. it starts out completely wacky, wacky, and yeah. then yeah, it gets more. It's almost like even though you know, I don't know how the fatalities play out, but it seems like our our society has gotten more like aware of the dangers. So like by the time you're at the most recent show, it it's played as this much more bittersweet thing. Whereas back in the eighties, it's just like yeah, driving instructors they're weird and uptight, you know. <laughs> So as surprising as it might sound, my favorite is Eight Simple Rules. Yeah. I really loved that. I I was choked up at the end. I loved the way that they were able to kind of show that story and allow us to like understand the psychology of this person who is acting in a way that would normally make my skin crawl and make me really angry. And like it did all, like I said, it did all the things that a lot of times these like big dumb dad shows don't do, which is allow him to grow and really see that moment of learning a lesson and and recognizing something he hadn't recognized before. So for all of those reasons, that was 100% of the trope, my favorite. Then if you just want to talk about best episode of television to watch, come on, got to be Taxi. Yeah, I think that for me, the eight simple rules one definitely has that heart to it. But I'm also seeing the death knell of the multi-camera sitcom in the early 2000s. Like I'm seeing this have its lunch eaten by New Girl and 30 Rock and just the better shows that are either contemporaneous with it or just around the corner. Like it just isn't top-notch sitcom writing to me. It's top-notch sitcom acting, I think, with mediocre sitcom writing. And so, yeah, entertainment-wise, it's just like, John Ritter, you know, his final sitcom, hurrah, you know, I'm fine with having watched it. But yeah, I guess I just didn't like it as much as you did. I feel like definitely... Taxi is the masterpiece in terms of, yeah, just entertainment value and that iconic sitcom moment. And I also really like the facts of life, the whole second half of it, like once she got into the car, just... You know, that's what you want if you're turning on an 80s sitcom is just like, let's give each cast member these little, you know, 30, 45 second comic strip moments where they each do a funny thing based on their personality applied to this specific situation. Then we're going to bring in a funny, you know, new character, some authority figure and have some fun with that. Like just, you know, chef's kiss in terms of like the 80s sitcom silliness. Trying to do. Yeah. And that really that show kind of had like three kind of two well three distinct parts I mean they all kind of have the three acts but each one of the acts had something to kind of grab onto yeah and and it was and it was funny they did a good job with it I forgot to mention did you notice anything in particular about the eight simple rules set no which what, what other show is it the set of it is the set of Sister, Sister. Oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> Good stuff all around. So much for learning how to drive. What are we talking about next week? Next week, get out your cement shoes because you're going to run in with the mob. We're going to watch Bosom Buddies, Season 2, Episode 12, The Grandfather, ALF, Season 3, Episode 13, Hide Away, Head of the Class, Season 4, Episode 25, Cement High Tops, and Everybody Hates Chris, Season 2, Episode 19, Everybody Hates Gambling. 
Yep, that's run-ins with the mafia next week, and until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. (laughs) 